This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Lucinda Holdforth, speechwriter and author. She joined me to talk about what's wrong with 21st century virtues. She talks about how they've been captured by neoliberal thinking and believes that the quest for these attributes encourage people to put self before community. To ensure a healthy democracy, do we need to reconsider what we think of as admirable traits in ourselves and each other? Her essay is out now through Monash University Publishing and it's called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Now I'm really excited to welcome on to this program a guest who I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting, but now I get to speak with her about some very deep subject matter. And it's something that I am really interested in. And I have a feeling you will be too. I think this is probably going to get the text line going on 3RRR. So we are going to be talking with speechwriter and author Lucinda Holdforth about a essay that she has written for Monash University Publishing and it's called 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Lucinda, for a better idea of her background, has spent time working previously in the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, and also Prime Minister and Cabinet at the federal level, obviously, having worked under the Hawke-Keating Labor government up to 1996 and was also speechwriter to Deputy Prime Minister Kim Beasley at the time, which is really taking me back, I've got to say, to another era when I was actually politically engaged, but that's unique for someone of my age at the time. And she has also since worked with chairs and CEOs of top ASX companies to also support them in their speech writing and speech giving. And that's something that I certainly had to do when I was a not-for-profit CEO, was write my own speeches. But I think I ended up not writing them and just doing them off the cuff because I couldn't stand having to write speeches. So that's why Lucinda exists and it's so great that she does because it means that she thinks about language, she thinks about how we communicate and what we communicate and it certainly relates to our values and our virtues. And she's now going to be talking not only about how they're not serving us personally, but how they're not serving democracy. So thank you very much, Lucinda, for joining us. And thank you also for your patience today. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Amy. And um, thank you for that very kind introduction. Oh, it's my pleasure. I um, have been really excited to talk about this topic with you and um, reading through your essay, there are so many different things to draw out and it's... um, often hard to know where to start, but I think the most obvious one for me is to, I guess, think about defining what a virtue is in the first instance, because, you know, we often think of ourselves as holding values and we act on our values, but virtues are something else as well. And they've been talked about across millennia. And obviously at the beginning of your essay, you highlight the different civilizations and their respective virtues that they have prized, including China and Confucian virtues of ritual respect and education. Uh, You talk about the pre-Socratic Greeks prizing self-knowledge, proportion and excellence. Um, and that being synonymous with virtue, and then also the ancient Romans who were uh, very much into courage, order, and vigour. But there are other virtues that have since emerged or 
um, been prized more highly in some ways, not only in the 21st century, um, but also in the 20th century, there was a whole different set of virtues. So can we get a sense from you, first of all, as to what you consider a virtue to be and some of the different virtues we might be familiar with um, from previous civilizations and previous centuries. And then we'll talk about our current virtues um, that have really emerged and, and what those are. Yes. Um, virtues, are, they seem like a very old-fashioned word now, don't they? And I think we probably associate them with the period of um, religious belief, in fact. We're now in a secular society. So we tend to talk about values, not virtues. But, of course, every society does, um, consciously or unconsciously, elevate certain ideas and make them important and valued in the culture. So if we, if we look at um, the Christian era in Western civilizations, we have the Catholic virtues um, and then the Christian virtues um, and I really noticed this when I went to stay with a friend up the coast in New South Wales, and on the board in the spare on the wall in the spare bedroom there was an old snakes and ladders board, beautiful old thing from the 1930s, and it had if you know snakes and ladders, you know if you land on the ladder you get to go up, if you land on a virtue you go up, and if you land on a snake's head that is a vice you go down. So this was like a snapshot of what people thought virtues and vices were in the 1930s. So the virtues were things like, and in fact, I'll tell you what they were. They were faith, forgiveness, self-denial, kindness, pity, penitence, obedience, and truthfulness. So that is really a portrait of what that society saw as the virtues that were um, admirable in individuals and because I believe that the virtues a culture elevates shape a society to a great extent, we can see that those virtues are part of what was shaping that culture. We can also see it in the vices. So on the Snakes and Ladders board, there were a huge number of vices. Um, frivolity was a vice. Unpunctuality mm. was a vice. Um, Avarice and covetousness were a vice. Well, now in a neoliberal world, it's kind of mandatory. Um, vanity was a vice, uh, not today. Um, dishonesty was still a vice. Selfishness was a vice. So we've, we, what we see is um, really a, a new order emerging now in this century, a new order of virtues. And my aim in writing the book was to say, well, let's take a look at these because... They're shaping children, they're shaping our culture, they're shaping our economy and society, and it's important that we articulate to ourselves what we believe in it is good. What do we think of as good and in behaviour and in our society? Absolutely. We do need to, to reflect on that. And, um, you know, the, the virtues, the 21st century virtues that you identify as being common among us and also yes. having commonalities between them are uh, virtues that might on the face of them sound really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'll read That's them out. True. Yeah, yeah, because I think people when they're going to hear these are going to say, well, how could you argue with these? So let's, yeah, let's hear them. Uh, we've got authenticity, humility, 
transparency, empathy, vulnerability, and self-care being some of the major ones that you list and highlight and also explore in detail in this essay. And uh, there is an interesting thread between them, which you point out, which is that they're very much all focused on the individual in a different way, in in some kind of way, in the self and subjectivity. Uh, That's right. And, and it being not necessarily outwardly focused on community and society and the benefit of the greater good and the collective. And, you know, I think about that issue. It reminded me of um, speaking with Hugh Mackay uh, years ago, talking about how we need to, you know, reach out to our neighbours and to take action and to be you know, embedded in our communities and thinking about others and, and not just talking about it. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to Triple R would support doing that because they're doing it right now by, you know, subscribing to independent media that's taking action. But these particular virtues, 21st century virtues, you say, are not really about the collective. They are about the individual. Could you tell us why you know, that's the case. And then we can talk about why that's a problem. But, you know, why is this the case that authenticity, humility, transparency, empathy, vulnerability, self-care, why are these 21st century virtues very, you know, individual-centred? Well, um, look, there'll be others, no doubt historians will want to trace back the origins of these so-called virtues. I trace them back, funnily enough, to a TED Talk given in 2010 by a very nice sociologist called Brené Brown. She gave a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability and it's still one of the most watched TED Talks ever. If you go into a bookshop in the self-help section today, it's not about self-improvement anymore. It's about how to accept and love yourself even more. And that is the fundamental Brené Brown message. So she says, um, she she started off by saying the problem with society was her American cohort was the most addicted, medicated, obese and indebted cohort in American history. And instead of looking at the social causes of those problems, she said the problem was a failure to be connected and that when we showed our vulnerability, That is how we could connect and address these problems. So um, she's written these various books. They're called things like Daring Greatly. Um, And the main theme of that book is the great dare is to show up and be seen. It's not to take action on climate change. It's not to contribute to a better world. It's a personal goal. So when I look at those virtues together. And I would add another one which sort of is relates to the old virtues and contrast with them, which is my truth. Uh, we used to have truthfulness, but now we place a premium on the idea of my truth, my lived experience. Um, and the Prince Harry um, book Spare is a classic example of that. So if we have just these virtues and in the absence of the older ones like truthfulness, self-restraint, kindness, and then we end up with a culture that prizes individual uniqueness, personal experiences of reality, subjective experiences of reality, 
and most of all, the quest for self-acceptance and self-love. So that is self before society and feelings above facts. And a democracy, um, the great Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa says, has to be based on facts, truth and trust. And without them, you can have no shared reality. So I, I fear that these virtues do take us inward um, and, in a sense, um, into a state of almost solipsism rather than outward to our society and action. Yeah, it certainly is something that I've noticed a lot more of as well, is that when you don't have a shared set of facts that everyone is speaking from, um, you can't make progress because then you are constantly debating the premise of the issue rather than the <laughs> issue itself. Exactly. That is so true. And what's even more remarkable, Amy, is that these virtues, so when I sort of looked around, they're everywhere. They are spouted from everyone, from CEOs of the big rapacious corporations through to progressive leftists, progressive activists, university vice-chancellors, school principals. So this is, this is sort of a consensus that has emerged almost overnight, not overnight, perhaps in the 2010. Mm. Um, and you're right, the, the bit that's most worrying is the subjectivity and the loss of a shared reality. And if we don't have that, how can we solve problems, as Maria Ressa says? Yeah, it, it reminds me of when I was growing up and think I actually was thinking about this because, um, you know, I was an avid reader of newspapers when they were in print and there were issues in the news like climate change that were becoming a big issue, um, but, you know, other political issues as well. And I noticed that more and more there wasn't just like, well, this is what the issue is. Um, and we're all going to maybe disagree on what the solution is, but here at least we agree that, you know, the climate is warming and, you know, the emissions have actually gone up, not down. And now we're actually, you know, tweaking around the edges saying, well, are they going up or down? And is are humans really involved? There's so much more grey, there's so much more subjectivity, there's so much more emotion, there's so much more perception. Um, there's mm -hmm. not this well, here's some rational, cold, hard facts and now we can, like, have it out over what to do about it. And I think that that's what is so frustrating and you obviously see that it play out more extremely in places like America, in Donald Trump's America, where, you know, he is being, I guess, his authentic self in a way because he's just being <laughs> he totally a total narcissist. Yeah, but, you know, we're seeing that play out in a severe way, which is that, well, there really is no shared basis of reality, I think, in America because uh, it's just completely everyone's own um, individual, you know, focus. Is it, I guess, interesting to think that uh, Brené Brown being an American, coming from an American cultural context, has brought this kind of individualism? Because I know that American society is often and has been known for that focus on um, not just the the liberalism of individuality and, you know, anyone can have the American dream, just pull yourself up from your bootstraps, but there's also that next level of, you know, individuality, self-focus, um, you know, it's about me first and then maybe I'll think about everyone else. You know, I have a theory that's not in the essay. I thought, why did Brene Brown, why did that idea become so popular in 2010? 
And I suspect it's the follow-up to the GFC, which was 2008, global financial crisis. America came perilously close to collapse. And there was a huge, I think, at that point, this, the, the end of that confident America you're talking about, where individualism was about striving for self-improvement and success. In the essay, I talk about Ben Franklin, who was kind of the, one of the world's first self-help gurus, amazingly, founding father, genius. Mm. Uh, and he was there writing his list. There was this sort of optimism that you could make a better self in a better society. And what you see in this Brene Brown thing about vulnerability is a kind of defeatism almost, a kind of um, looking back inward. And I wonder if that is part of this, the decline that we all have seen in America. Um, I could be wrong, but that's certainly a perception that I've had. It's almost... Um, and, and Donald Trump is a, like the classic symptom of that because he speaks to people's anger about this decline, this sense that things are going bad and they can't control it. He's, he, he stimulates, as you say, feelings of anger, um, dejection, loss of that success feeling that they had as a nation, uh, and, he, and he pushes those buttons very brilliantly. I mean, to me, in a broader sense, it's an undermining of the Enlightenment. I mean, the whole point of the Enlightenment was an idea that reason got us places. <laughs> and the reason that really worries me is because what we see in totalitarian regimes, in Putin's Russia, uh, in the old Soviet Union, was uh, also an undermining of the Enlightenment with mere ideology and feelings. So the great writer Milan Kundera was in Czechoslovakia, his country, in 1968, when the Soviets invaded. And he noticed how passionate the soldiers were as they searched him and his car. He said they were full of feelings. And he said, when feelings are promoted to the rank of value and truth, which is what we're talking about, they can become the basis for intolerance and they can become a justification for a superstructure of brutality. And that is what worries me. If we were to extrapolate, live with these, just these virtues, we are heading down a path that's antithetical to reason and to democracy. Mm. Mm. Well, you also quote one of my favourite historians, Timothy Snyder. Oh, uh, yes. Isn't he amazing? <laughs> We share a lot, I think, Amy. Yeah, I we think we read the same people. I think we do. We share a worldview. <laughs> yes, Timothy Snyder said to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. Post-truth is pre-fascism. Pretty yeah. powerful words. It's true. Powerful. Yeah, that, it that true. last statement, post-truth is pre-fascism, that yep. should be on a bumper sticker um, because <laughs> it is. And, you know, fascism is not some remote issue or or idea anymore. Um, it certainly wasn't in the 20th century as I've been um, researching in my own uh, life. But there's also, you know, that thing that you mentioned about emotion, it reminded me of Susan David, who I, um, I found out she's actually a, an alumni of Melbourne University and I saw her speak once and she actually was on a Brene Brown podcast, which is the only reason why I have even heard of Brene Brown before. <laughs> um, and Susan David, the thing that she said that resonated with me, and she's a psychologist uh, also at Harvard, and she was saying that, you know, our emotions aren't 
like this really solidly reliable kind of compass that we need to kind of follow and also see as some kind of really objective um, basis of evidence, you know, that our emotions, yes, they're an indicator, they're a flag that something might be happening, but they're not just something to kind of be blindly guided by because that can often mean that we, you know, get overwhelmed when we say I'm anxious versus I'm feeling anxious. And what does that tell me about what's happening in my life? You know, she also is very anti-toxic positivity, which I am as well, with this idea that you can just think yourself happy and, you know, things will be all fixed. She's a very sensible person and that's why I was so surprised that she was on that that podcast. Well, maybe Um, she's trying to to cure to cure the faithful of Brene Brown. Maybe. She might have got through to them. It was a two-part podcast, um, which, yeah, Brene was very getting into it. So anyway, I I just, it, it made me also think that Susan David, what she was saying is supporting this idea that, you know, our emotions aren't just something that we need to, um, I guess, be affected by in a way that can be overwhelming or that that might be blinding or that might be, well, that's my objective um, experience now because I've felt that emotion and that's how things actually are. You know, we need to think critically and have more self-awareness about what's happening to us. So I don't know, how does that factor into your thinking about some of these 21st century virtues? Well, I think um, it definitely goes to the idea of my truth. So Exactly as you were saying, this idea that your feelings are promoted, one's feelings can be promoted to say, my feelings equal reality. Well, that is a recipe for the decline of society, basically. Mm. It's the atomization of it. And that is why um, I think Stephen Colbert, the great sort of American comedian, political commentator, talked about the rise of truthiness, which was um, the period before Trump became president when um, he said people people felt things and that if they they may or they may be supported by facts but weren't didn't necessarily have to be to the level of trumpiness which meant you just had the feelings you didn't care whether they were based on any reality or not mm. so that's a, that's society splitting apart I mean we're not at that in Australia but Gosh, it matters to us if this is happening around the world. And it also matters to us to take care of the the common good, I think, to think. So what worries me is, as you, as you said at the beginning, people think, oh, these are all quite nice. These are lovely virtues, you know. Mm. It's great. We, we, we have our individual experiences and we share them. Um, but, but my concern is that, first of all, that's not going to help us solve you know, that's not going to help us find the shared reality, which is the basis on which we can even start to address problems. But it's also a convenient distraction. So the biggest promoters of these virtues are, in fact, big corporations. They love it. They're all there with their pride floats and their, you know, are you okay days. They're all about, you know, feigning sympathy, support, love in the workplace, we're all, bring your whole self to work, we're all, we're all here, we, you know, we can feel feelings with each other. What are the real issues? Well, George Monbiot says it's neoliberalism and even Martin Wolf, rather conservative economics writer, says the same thing. He calls it laissez-faire capitalism. 
And they both say that these are incompatible with democracy. So we sort of look, it's a look over their strategy, I think. And that's the other thing that worries me, this widespread... And, you know, when we look at the way universities have become sort of neoliberal organisations very largely as Mm. well, talk a good talk, talk a big game, perfect Brené Brown value. A lot of these big corporations, you won't believe this, but they get training in authentic leadership. There is a Brené Brown training course you can do. People do the training. To me, it's staggering that we would take that stuff seriously whilst ignoring the really big problems we face as a society. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, gosh, that's getting me into a whole other area when I'm thinking about leadership courses, which they are very problematic in and of themselves. And I was just thinking when you (laughs) talked about um, the corporatisation of universities, I mean, wage theft. Uh, Think about the strikes that have just been happening here in Victoria with the universities, so many of their staff going on strike. Melbourne Uni had a week-long strike. Uh, Other universities taking part this week. You know, I know the issue issue is similar across the country. So you get to to hear all these very progressive, um, you know, ideas, but then in practice, does it actually eventuate? Um, you know, we see reports around sexual assault on campus and whether they're dealt with particularly well. Um, let's yes. let's talk about some of those other virtues that you've mentioned um, in this essay because there are some that have been grouped together in your piece um, and one of those areas is humility and empathy, which you kind of bring together in a way um, And I was really interested in that in particular because uh, you call them inflatable virtues. (laughs) And uh, and it's really interesting because there is, I I think there's more awareness today at least that there is a difference between sympathy and empathy. So we've got that down. Um, But now there's often this this idea that empathy is better than sympathy um, because, you know, sympathy is I can see something is wrong and, uh, you know, I, I acknowledge that, but empathy is I can feel that something's wrong or I can feel your perspective or point of view or your emotions or I can feel your suffering or I can put myself in your shoes, whereas the sympathy has a certain level of distance between one person and another. Um, yes. And then obviously there being humility, which is something that in Australia with the tall poppy syndrome is very prized uh, as a virtue, you can't possibly not be humble. So could you tell us about some, those two virtues and, and what your thoughts are of them? Well, I called them inflatable virtues because I was thinking that in the old days people used to talk about being modest uh, and being kind. And I, I, you know, when I take over the country, Amy, I'm going to suggest we go back to those much more uh, modest and humble virtues. They... They are about um, not necessarily blowing your own trumpet. Humility is creepy in a way when it's when it's this um, performative process mm. because um, it often means I'm not really humble. It means I'm saying I'm humble because actually I'm so great. Uh, and in fact, there was a French duke in you know the 17th century who said that humility was one of the worst forms of conceit because it was a way of proving yourself even more superior to other people, not only fabulous but very humble about it as well. Empathy is fascinating. Um, Brene Brown talks about empathy a lot, and she um, 
I find it hilarious, has this story, an image of somebody's down a well and you walk by and you see them down the well and they call up, I'm down here, I'm all alone, you know, I need help. And, and then you, the, the viewer, you're not meant to be a bystander, you go and sit down in the well with them. So, of course, the first thing I think is, wouldn't it have been more helpful to throw down a ladder so that person can get out of the well? But no, you're, in, you're invited to go and sit with that person. But then even more, she says, oh, but if you, if you can't get yourself out, then you shouldn't get down in the well. So mm. self-care comes first. I mean, empathy, empathy is just about feelings. That's all it is. Empathy is... A, a, Feeling someone else's feelings. Personally, I don't know what you feel, Amy. I can look at you and I can see you're in trouble. I can't feel your feelings and you can't feel mine. And that's okay. That's the human condition. We're very different. We experience things differently. But what we can do is be kind to each other. And that means action. And that's how we get back to the idea of neighborliness, civic action, whether it's preserving the commons, whether it's, you know, looking out for the person in the flat next door. Um, to me, empathy is a convenient cop-out as a word. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I, you know, I don't really even understand what it's for, if you know what I mean. Mm. If it was empathy plus action, fine, but it's never, no one ever talks about the action part. It's no. just the feelings. It's interesting because, you know, when we think about the where empathy might be deployed in uh, our lives, it might be, for example, someone um, has passed away in their life or you've just come down, you know, with a serious illness or, you know, you've lost your job. Like there are a whole range of things where people might try and empathise and, you know, bring their emotions into your heavy emotions and it can often mean that I think the person who's the one having that difficult news feels more guilty or feels more burdened or you know it feels even worse because they're making another person feel bad when they already feel bad that's exactly right I mean I had breast cancer some years ago and The last thing I wanted was for other people to be as upset as me. That that did not help me. That was just an Mm. added emotional burden. Um, You know, like so many women having breast cancer, I was just battling to kind of manage myself. And what I needed around me were people who were kind. And what I really loved, you know, I look back on that period and there were some really good things, which was the way in which different people helped me. So my brother couldn't cook, but he'd go and buy great food from his favourite deli and just come and leave and just leave them and go away again. Another friend was a great cook, is a great cook, and she'd bring dinners over for us. Mm. Um, Another friend lived um, out of town and she she was working in a second-hand bookshop and she would just pick odd books and send them. I still have that little collection of sort of curated, lovingly curated books for me to read. And I felt like that was a gesture towards my recovery as well. It's saying, I know you're going to read these. If you can't read them now, you will. Yeah. So those actions, so thoughtful, but also based on their pleasures and their tastes and what they like doing as well. So, you know, empathy on its own, oh, okay, fine. 
But um, I think kindness and action um, and, and, the, and the action generated by kindness is much more practical and much more um, achievable, in fact. It's, when, I talk, when I think about these virtues, I think there seems to be a great deal of excuse for not doing much, actually. <laughs> you act humble. You say, I'm empathetic. It's kind of passive mm. because, remember, the other virtue that's so important is vulnerability and this idea that we're all terribly vulnerable. Well, I'm a middle-class woman and I'm honestly up for me to, to call myself vulnerable would be, you know, a travesty, in fact, mm. compared to other people. So encouraging children to think of themselves as vulnerable, uh, you know, seems to me really unhealthy, really unhelpful, and, and once again, a distortion of reality. Mm. And then because we now have a cure for that, which is building resilience, uh, which is that painful word that I had to deal with in the um, <clears throat> gender equality space where women had to just be resilient um, and then they could fix sexism. Uh, you know, <laughs> that was that killed me inside to hear that all the time. But, you know, now we do have this idea that we have to open ourselves up all the time to, you know, tell people or share our vulnerability, to be transparent with our vulnerabilities um, so that they can also feel like they could, I guess, potentially relate to us uh, more and then we would seem more authentic. I'm using all of these <laughs> words that you're these using. These are the buzzwords. They yes, are. They and are. It, they certainly come up, as you point out, on LinkedIn as a, another example. Um <laughs> You know, I, I was really interested in that idea around vulnerability because you talk about privacy as being a, a flip side of that. Um, and obviously being vulnerable ne isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but the way that it can play out if it is prioritised um, uh, you know, this idea that we need to share all of ourselves or to have our privacy eroded even further when we already have, you know, big tech corporations, governments, you know, essentially taking our privacy away from us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about vulnerability is that is a facet of the human condition. You know, mm -hmm. we're all going to die. We're all going to get sick. We're all going to have a terrible breakup. Something bad's going to happen. Cost of living can't afford a house, whatever. So that, that's the human condition. What I find weird is elevating that to a virtue. Like that's, not, that's not a virtue. That's the human condition. And whilst resilience, you're right, that sort of odious resilience thing, that sort of buck-up mantra of resilience, I don't uh, – can often, again, be a distraction. I absolutely loathe the idea of um, encouraging children to grow up to be – to think that being – vulnerable, declaring it, kind of concentrating on it is a good thing. Um, and we see women in public life, you know, when something happens to them, uh, when Jacinda Ardern um, left politics, for example, everyone said, oh, poor, you know, poor Jacinda, she was so, you know, she was so hard done by, she was so vulnerable. And I thought, let's not call that strong, capable woman vulnerable. She had a great she had a great tenure as a politician, as the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Mm. She saw the polling. She headed for the exit. I say, go Jacinda, and she'll have a huge international career. So I don't like tagging people with that even. I think it's, 
I think, you know, to call someone like Jacinda Ardern a highly successful woman vulnerable is to misuse the word, I think. Yeah. Well, she's a very savvy um, politician. Very savvy. Yeah. But, the, but as you say, the other, the sort of consequence of a world in which we say it's great to be vulnerable and authentic and tell my truth is, in fact, giving up your privacy. And that's a real problem because, as we know, this is another feature of totalitarian regimes increasingly also of our own neoliberal regimes, but I see people giving up, willingly giving up their privacy. Um, and what that tells me is that we've lost the sense of our um, the prime importance of our kind of personal humanity. And by that I mean that, you know, we are like each person is like a tree. We grow, we branch out, we change you know, we feel the winds of circumstance. And what nourishes us are the deep the deep roots that we have underground and hidden. Um, and, um, you know, great writers have written about the importance of this love of private life, um, not just for artists but for citizens mm-hmm. as well, the value of that. Um, so George Orwell um, wrote a great essay in 1941 uh, in which he was speculating about the possibility of the Ger- a German invasion of Britain and what would happen. And he, and he lovingly wrote that one good thing was that the Brits were a nation of crossword puzzle doers and pigeon fanciers and liked the pub and the tea room. And he said, and, for, and the two worst words you could hear in the English language were nosy parker. And he said... Uh, he thought it was pretty unlikely the Gestapo would get a hold in Britain because of that love of the private life. And Milan Kundera also talked about privacy being so important um, to preserving your humanity. And, in fact, he had a great line about, he said, um, he said the man who is the same in his public life and in his private life would be a monster he would be without spontaneity in his private life and without responsibility in his public life. So it alarms me that we expect our leaders now to be what we would call fully transparent to us. I don't need to know all the details of their lives. I just I need them to do the right thing as leaders. Obviously leaving out crime and, you know, egregious actions, but people need a private life to nourish their humanity and their capability to serve. And we've forgotten that. We seem to have forgotten that. Yeah, there's this level of accessibility that's required now to the people that we, that lead us. And I guess part of it is around that idea of personality politics, which has come, become so popular. You know, I, still remember writing blog posts in the early thousands about how it's now all about personality and not politics and how, you know, Julia Gillard's going to be the real Julia now, not the, oh. not the old Julia that wasn't real before she's changed. Yeah. You know, that was a, almost a joke when that cat, when she came out saying that, um, I don't know who was advising her then, but you know, that, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Amy? A that major a one. But yeah. you know, now we call it personal brand, and we all mm. you know we all take it seriously. And what a repellent idea! What a trap! I mean, we must be allowed to evolve and change. Great leaders change their minds, and we we mustn't hold people captive to something that they thought ten years ago or did ten years ago. You know, 
it's it's just a terrible mistake. So, yeah, I'm very down. I'm down on the personal brand, I have to say. Oh, and same. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think it's it's not just it's bad for the individual and it's bad for society because mm. it's a way of pigeonholing people, I think, um, and not allowing them to change and flourish and evolve in their lives. It's so true. I mean, I would really hope that everyone has evolved in some way in their life. I certainly know I have. Thankfully, you know, it's, yeah, you would expect a leader to, given that they're often in a kind of crucible of issues that they're dealing with, depending on their level of responsibility. Um, And obviously not every leader is a good leader. Um, But, you know, these are things that do form us and transform us. Um, it, it's something that, you know, LinkedIn is an, a great example of perform, performativity when it comes to authenticity mm-hmm. and vulnerability and transparency. Yeah. And, you know, we there's a lot of oversharing um, going on. Oversharing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm like, I do one LinkedIn post a year and it's subscribed to Triple R and then I go back in my <laughs> hole <laughs> and, and don't do anything again. Um, but there's one yeah. other thing I just wanted to bring in because I Ooh. saw this um, – meme or I guess like post on Facebook and as soon as I saw it I went I have to get Lucinda on the show (laughs) and it was a picture of Sarah Jessica Parker it was posted on I think the Marie Claire Facebook which I don't know why it came up in mine because I don't follow them but she had a quote about self-care and it probably isn't what you think it's going to be but I'm going to read it out for everyone she says I think the concept of self-care makes people feel terrible and lousy and isolated that they can't afford access to or even dream of self-care. And I thought that kind of sounds a little bit like what Lucinda was saying about self-care. So there you go. You have Sarah Jessica Parker, an ally, (laughs) on your your point about (laughs) self-care. And I I agree because I think that, you know, there's so much uh, inequality in society. There's Uh, many different intersections causing that inequality, disability, class, gender, ethnicity, religion, so many different aspects. Um, And, you know, taking one example, a very really obvious example, disability and chronic illness, a lot of those people are just struggling to get by and function, let alone have any idea of what self-care is. Um, And this does seem to be something which has been corporatized, monetized, like Valentine's Day gets monetized and love gets monetized. This idea of individual self-care has now become an economy. It really has. And, you know, when I um, I, I, I find it, you know, I, I do find it really quite appalling. I mean, obviously, healthy citizens who have means and capabilities like me and you we have an obligation as citizens to look after ourselves as best we can mm. um, and to make the most of ourselves. That's that's absolutely kind of part of our duty, in fact. But when you make self-care this kind of virtue on its own, what I want to know now is at what point does self-care become selfishness? Is there, is there no end to the self-care? And as you say, even more than this, um, what about those people for whom just living is really hard, really hard? And, mm. you know, we've had on the news stuff about uh, people on sort of the welfare payments in Australia and there's been a slight increase. And you think these are people living in, the, in this high-tech 
very difficult world with a range of disabilities and disadvantages. And they're not going to be very good at managing their budgets, right, or whatever. And yet, does that mean, do they get con consigned to the unvirtue column because they're not great at making money and self-care? I think they do. I think it's neoliberalism in action, this virtue of self-care. It's, it's really, it's really, it's, it's wrong and it's mm. dangerous. Uh, and, you know, there's an, Martin Wolf, the economist, he talked, that's where I think the term self-restraint becomes an interesting one. I, I used to be very much against self-restraint. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I was all in favour of just going for whatever. But nowadays I think I see what it means in a social sense that it's not just about the complete pursuit of your own pleasures and interests uh, or beauty <laughs> or longevity, which is kind of the modern passion. Yeah. It's, got to be, it's got to be in the context of society. Yeah, yeah, it totally does. That's what I think this essay brings back to me is this idea of putting the individual back into the collective, that it's yeah. not one or the other. It needs to be both um, and that everything needs to be thought holistically, not just uh, as an individual self. Um, I wanted to just finish this conversation by, I, I don't know, thinking about if these aren't the prized virtues of the 21st century, what are the ones we should hold up? as being important. And I know you've said kindness. You've also said modesty. Um, what are the alternatives to what we've been talking about that might seem the same or similar, but are actually putting a, a different emphasis and giving us a different way to act, guiding us in a different way? Different way. Well, I think, I think there is merit in bringing back some of those outdated, like I think truthfulness could really do with a run, <laughs> more <laughs> than my truth. And that goes to the idea, as you, you and I have talked about, about kind of reality. Self-denial, definitely. Kindness. Um, trustworthiness, I think, is another important word. And that's about making a promise and keeping your word. I think that's a very beautiful virtue that should be brought back. Um, but I would also add, I think we, Western society moved out of Christian virtues, right? And we're now in a secular world. But what makes our secular world good isn't um, capitalism, it's democracy. So my interest would be in thinking about what are the democratic virtues we should have. And I think that's something to do with being rational, optimistic about social participation, some of those sorts of virtues, and I can't, you know, I'm not, I'd, I can't dictate, but I would love, I would invite people to think about what, what do democratic virtues look like and how can we, how can we bring them to the fore and talk about them in a way um, that has the passion evoked by uh, Brené Brown's self-care and authenticity. I think we need a renewal of commitment to democracy, to free speech, um, to those those core values of that, and that that is how we will preserve ourselves against totalitarian totalitarianism, and also against the worst excesses of neoliberalism. Yeah. Yeah, well, what a great way to end that conversation. And also I think um, Lucinda 
uh, yeah, we must have similar bookshelves because I, um, when you mentioned that French thinker, I was like, I have his book uh, oh, sitting above my bed. I, I know. Let's, let's have some. <laughs> I love it. A shelfie is, I think that's what they're called now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about <laughs> Francois de la Rochefoucauld. And, de la Rochefoucauld, yes. I wrote a book about Paris and the women of Paris, and oh. he, uh, he features in that book as part of the, the sexy salon, the cynical salon society of Paris. But, boy, they had a lot of wisdom, those guys. They oh, my gosh. They were on well, about. <laughs> we are literally about to go there because we're going to be talking about Voltaire and Diderot and Catherine the Great in the 18th century. So that's pretty perfect. I'm going to have to read your book now. Um, so, yeah, Rochefoucauld's Collected Maxims and Other Reflections is a great book if anyone wants to just dip in some little ideas because they're only little thought bubbles or aphorisms, aphorisms exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Lucinda. And people thank can also you, read your essay, which is very easy to read and dip into as well. Um, and it is out through Monash University Publishing. It's called uh, 21st Century Virtues, How They Are Failing Our Democracy. Thank you so much, Lucinda. Hold forth for joining us. Thank you. I've just been chatting with Lucinda, who is a speechwriter and author, and as you can tell, has written other books and including another book on manners, which I'm also very pro uh, manners. So, yeah, check out Lucinda's essay. It's really, really thought-provoking. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.